From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. In uh, the beginning of the COVID, we're suffering as health workers of the lack of tests in uh, Gaza. And it was a big problem. The occupation did not allow us to have the test kits. And with the great pressure and intervention by the World Health Organization, this maybe after two or three months, we started to have some tests that enabled us to continue tests. This week, we discuss the COVID-19 pandemic in the besieged Gaza Strip in a conversation with Dr. Mona Elfarra, the director of Gaza Projects of the Middle East Children's Alliance and a member of the Union of Health Work Committees. Later in the program, we speak with Professor Isis Nosair and Hawaida Arraf, two members of the newly formed Palestinian Feminist Collective committed to Palestinian social and political liberation by way of confronting systemic gendered and colonial violence, oppression, and dispossession. Stay with us. In recent weeks, the besieged Gaza Strip has been witnessing an alarming increase in the number of people with COVID-19 infections. Almost all of Gaza has been declared a red zone by the Ministry of Health because of widespread community transmission, with positivity rates of 30% to 38% for all tested persons. The Associated Press reports that so far, there have been more than 100,000 confirmed COVID-19 infections and 848 deaths in Gaza. And according to Ignacio Casares, the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Gaza has received around 100,000 vaccine doses so far, a fraction of what is needed for a population of over 2 million. I spoke with Dr. Mona Elfara about the pandemic and the effects of the Israeli siege and the occupation on healthcare system in Gaza. Dr. Mona Elfara is the director of Gaza Projects of the Middle East Children's Alliance, vice president of the Palestinian Red Crescent Society of the Gaza Strip, and a member of the Union of Health Work Committees. The report is absolutely right. For example, today, we had 11 uh, cases, we had uh, 1,179 new cases, but sometimes this number is uh, variable. Sometimes we are very close to 2,000 uh, cases a day. The situation is very bad with the COVID because Gaza is very small uh, piece of um, land and it is overcrowded, highly populated, and uh, people are living in uh, very modest, small homes homes, around eight people in the same household, and sometimes if they have extended uh, homes in the same building, live something like 40 or 55 people. Not much place for spacing. We are talking in the Western countries about distancing. It is not existing in Gaza, and that makes situation very dangerous. Like the latest wave of the COVID in Gaza, the number of cases increased because of the continuous inability to distance and the continuous deprivation in Gaza. Part of this deprivation is the houses are not fit. Most households, 80% of 
house holds are not fit not suitable with the covid or without the covid not suitable homes overcrowded streets not enough playing grounds and parks for children and the family everything is lacking in gaza and it has a lot to do with first the occupation we are still occupied under israeli occupation second um, there has been harsh siege against gaza since 14 years And within this 14 years, we have been subjected to three major military assaults against Gaza and daily attacks against our fishermen and the farmers in their land. So we did not have time to settle and to improve and to deal whatever uh, local resources uh, we have with this siege and with the inability to Travel outside Gaza, this is one thing. Another thing is the humanitarian situation has deteriorated to a great deal. When Gaza was announced 2020 as an unsuitable place for living, and when I say unsuitable place for living, I talk about water unsuitable for drinking. I talk about high unemployment. We mention environment, the incompetent, efficient sewage system, lack of medications, polluted sea, and spread of diseases as well. Lack of electricity in Gaza, this is a major problem. So all these factors and many others, of course, contribute to the disastrous humanitarian situation in Gaza, even before the COVID. And COVID came on top of this. It is expected to be dangerous and taking some lives. And latest wave of the infection showed that the symptoms were more severe than the other waves and the number of deaths started to increase. Let's talk about some of the factors you brought up. The Israeli blockade and continuous assaults on Gaza has led to, as you said, shortage of food, electricity and medical supplies. What has been the impact of the siege on supply of coronavirus testing kits and personal protective equipments, PPE and masks and other necessary items? In uh, the beginning of the COVID, we're suffering as health workers of the lack of tests in Gaza. And it was a big problem. The occupation did not allow us to have the test kits And with the great pressure and intervention by the World Health Organization, this maybe after two or three months, we started to have some tests that enabled us to continue tests. And in my understanding that the the number of the cases were large numbers, but we did not have enough kits. In the beginning, it was a large number as well, not only recently. But now we have enough kits. But as always, when we lack medicine, It is always a big problem for us, a lot of obstacles, a lot of restrictions in getting medicine into Gaza as well as the kids. Number two, the vaccination. The vaccination at the moment, uh, if you compare Israel to Gaza, we and the West Bank under occupation, so we are the responsibility of the occupation as the international law stated. So in Israel up till now, they are very keen to vaccinate the population. So at least 95% of the Israeli population are vaccinated at the moment. While in Gaza, up till now, we have 85,000 vaccinations in Gaza. Gaza population is 2.2 million Mm. at the moment. And the health situation is disastrous in Gaza, as well as other issues I mentioned earlier. This is small comparison 
gives you an idea how Israel is treating us in racist way and I call it apartheid medicine because we we get the vaccination from the Palestinian Authority but through Israel. Israel is controlling the entrance of the vaccine into Gaza as well as the traveling of people as well as traveling of patients for further treatment in the West Bank. So we have double double siege. Now three, we have the occupation, which is the most dangerous virus, I say, for us. We have the siege, that means the blockade we are having since 14 years, and we have the COVID at the moment. So the problem is triple now for us in Gaza. Where else are you getting the vaccine from? It comes from Jordan to the authority, but The idea of getting it into Gaza, they don't allow it to pass into Gaza, to enter into Gaza. It is all coordinated by the WHO. Yes. And Israel wouldn't allow it to enter Gaza smoothly. That's why we don't Mm. have enough vaccination at the moment. Israel has been criticized for not providing vaccines to the people in the occupied territories. At the same time, it has been branded as the most successful in the world in its mass vaccination campaign and data collection. But how should we understand Israel's response to the pandemic in Gaza as part of its settler colonialism objectives? I see it simply in one word. It is apartheid regime. It's occupation with the wall that has been built in the West Bank, with the way they are treating us as second-hand citizens, as simple as that. The apartheid regime still existing in the world. It is um, past the colonial era. Israel has weaponized the pandemic like everything else, including food, water, electricity, basic health care. You are absolutely right. Even in the beginning of the COVID, they wanted to bargain, letting medicine enter into Gaza as part of compromise or part of a deal in exchange of the, the Israeli soldiers who are in Gaza at the moment. They are bargaining with one of, very, of our very basic human rights, which is right to medicine, right to treatment. So they are bargaining all the time. And uh, they did, as I have told you earlier on, they didn't consider us. They consider us as second class citizen, and it is very clear apartheid regime. I see it all the time. And now there's something new, which is the apartheid medicine, the apartheid health, the discrimination in health because you are occupied, the discrimination because you you are others. This is great discrimination, racism, and something should be denounced by all the people who are working for justice in the world. Dr. Mona, Dr. Yara Hawari wrote a piece in Al-Shabaka, And she says, between 2008 and 2014, successive Israeli bombardments of Gaza saw 147 hospitals and primary health clinics and 80 ambulances damaged or destroyed and 145 medical workers injured or killed. Palestinian patients have even been abducted from their hospital beds by the Israeli armed forces. Since 2000, the population in Gaza has doubled, and yet the number of primary health care facilities has fallen from 56 to 49. And as it stands, there are only 255 intensive care beds in the West Bank for a population of 3 million 
and only 120 in Gaza for a population of 2 million. In total, there are 6,440 hospital beds between the two territories. This report was published after the 2014 uh, attack against Gaza. Still, the, it mentioned that it is uh, 120 RCU beds. At the moment, it is 180 beds, which is uh, by all means not enough for a pandemic like the COVID. And um, it was even a little bit less in the beginning of the, the pandemic. It was 85 beginning of the pandemic, and it has increased to 180 at the moment. As today, we have 387 cases are in need for, um, for ICU. Okay, so what happens when there are no more spaces to take in critical patients? They die if the case has been deteriorated. And because also we all the time suffering of the lack of oxygen. For example, today 11 people died. And so the hospitals and the medical staff are working tirelessly in such a very, very difficult situation during the pandemic, as well as during the attacks. We always working under pressure and under deprivation, and especially during the COVID situation. And something good in Gaza that we are committed to the WHO restrictions. I mean, the government, the health authority in Gaza, committed to the rules of the WHO. But the people in Gaza, I wouldn't say they are committed because I mentioned earlier lack of circumstances for social distancing. Uh, Besides, there is um, lack of health awareness and something very psychological, I always say it. We in Gaza, because of the very, very dire situation, this is usual and normal, have this feeling of despair. Life equal death, or at least some people have this feeling that we have been subjected to this tax. This is my analysis for the feeling, the compliance of people towards the restrictions. Besides poverty, poverty is a big enemy for any human being. For example, if the government wants to impose lockdown, and while the situation is very dire and poor and people have food from money or food from hand to mouth, then if they were locked down, they will not have the chance to, to bring any little thing for the family. This is a very important issue. It is a matter of, uh, of deprivation and economical situation, which is deteriorating in Gaza, even before the COVID, it became more with the COVID. I am angry sometimes because my people are not committed, but I can understand very clearly what is behind all this, because I'm living in Gaza, I practiced in Gaza, and I know how how people's minds think in Gaza. You have asked me about the masks, and uh, yeah, yeah, they are available, but still you need to buy it. People have no money, so sometimes, most of the times, they will not have to wear wear the mask because it costs. And this is, again, discrimination of the the virus, discrimination, I call it, because if you have, then you you at least can protect yourself. If you don't have, go to hell. That's why one of my main goals with my colleagues in Gaza that at one point we are against private medicine and we, we are with supported medicine or supported health for all and if we have if we have we have managed to have normal situation but in my country in Gaza 
we don't have normal situation. We all that have to deal with abnormal situation, in, including the health issues. Struggling, but despite of that struggle, we have this very important feeling of social solidarity amongst us in Gaza, which makes us stronger, stronger. But I wouldn't say that we are very strong because what we have been through, our attempts to adapt, to accommodate, it makes you strong in one part and it makes you in other part exhausted and drained. But in the end, there is resilience in Gaza. But at the same time, this pandemic is real and it kills people. And looking at Gaza, even before this pandemic, the whole healthcare system was under a lot of stress. Can you take us back to the pre-pandemic era and give us a sense of the healthcare system? The healthcare system was collapsing before the coronavirus. And uh, because every month we are, the health workers, organizations, hospitals, etc., struggling, great struggle to get medicine into Gaza. And um, usually so many important medications are lacking, including painkillers, including medicine for renal dialysis, including cancer medicines. This is all lacking. Antibiotics, everything is is lacking before the COVID. With the COVID, the situation became worse. This factor about the medicine. Another factor is about the medical equipment in Gaza because of uh, like um, CT, laboratory equipment, MRI, X-ray, all things that is um, linked to electricity, special care baby units all linked to electricity. This has been not functioning in the sense that because of the continuous cut down of the power, they collapse or need repair. And when they are collapsing and need repair again, the borders are closed and it is again a great struggle to get the spare parts or or to repair the, the equipment. This is something. Another thing, because we are in Gaza isolated from the other world, and when you talk about health, it is about staff, about nurses, about uh, health workers, doctors, surgeons, etc. So this group of people are isolated from being promoted through traveling, through attending uh, conferences, having the chance to update their medicine, like having courses, experience to be in other countries and come back, etc. We lack all this. So the human power as well, the healthy human power as well, having the experience because we have to do it because we can do nothing but not the real experience you need to communicate with other medical staff not only through the zoom through traveling i mean through yeah. going and having the further degrees etc so we lack this besides that the budgets for the hospitals the funds for the hospitals and medical facilities are lacking and you need this to make sure that you are having uh, good health care. The health care itself needs so many things. One is the funds. Second, borders to be open, so to upgrade the hospitals and the staff. Third, which is very, very important as well, the logistics. There's not enough funds for hospitals, all hospitals in Gaza, because the, the funds, including the funds to UNRWA, for example, UNRWA doesn't have hospitals, but it has primary health care, has been cut. Just recently, it has been replaced by the Americans, but still their medical facilities are suffering because of the American cuts. 
other hospitals suffering because of not enough funds, NGOs, non-governmental health organizations suffering because of lack of funds. So the end result is that we don't have proper medical care. And that means there are more people with pre-existing conditions. Of course, that means also that people with chronic illnesses like high blood pressure, mm. bronchial asthma, patients with renal dialysis machines, they die slowly, slowly but not reported because what because we don't have proper research to see why this patient died because of lack of this because we are busy surviving. So this reflects itself on the health attitude and the health environment. In its 2014 assault on Gaza alone, Israel destroyed thousands of homes and an estimated 73 medical facilities. And I read that most of them could not be rebuilt because of import restrictions. Yeah, at that uh, time, as you have mentioned, uh, still the vast majority of these places has been not rebuilt. And uh, the whole infrastructure in Gaza is still suffering because thousands of homes were um, uh, were destroyed and hospitals, associations and um, mosques has been destroyed. So the whole infrastructure is, hasn't been replaced. But when it comes to hospitals and primary health care centers, it affects lives and it affects quality of uh, health in my country. Dr. Monod, the authorities in Gaza have uh, imposed on and off lockdowns. What's been the impact? How effective do you think these lockdowns have been in containing the spread of uh, the virus? Yeah, now at the moment it is 6 o'clock till um, next day 7 a.m. It's locked down, plus uh, the weekend, which is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Curfew, not curfew actually. Vehicles are not allowed to move in the streets, but just only people. And uh, this has, um, it contains for some time, but then it is not the final solution. It contains for a short period, but not the real solution for the, the problem. Because in situation like this destroyed infrastructure, including homes, hospitals, primary healthcare, humans, you need very good solution for that. You need to improve the situation. You need to leave to lift the siege and to give the Palestinian people in Gaza a chance to settle and try to, to lead normal life, although this is going to be long term. Anyway, short term now, and we are talking about COVID. We are divided at the moment. Is it good measures or no? But I am with having this good measure temporarily because it will stop the problem temporarily. But the problem is larger than the COVID. It is larger than the COVID. It is the story of 2.2 million living under siege, occupation, and having the pandemic on top of that, and have to be all the time anxious of when is the next attack against Gaza. Those people are living in Gaza while the drones are on top of our heads in the sky, and the children are frightened because the drone sounds recall the traumatic experience of the latest attack. Every day, the Israeli army is attacking the fishermen in the sea and attacking farmers in their farms. And there's small incursions. Every day, the army tanks enter the agricultural land in Gaza, in the east and the north of Gaza. Nobody hears about this in the news. But when it is shed of blood, 
a lot of killed people they hear about us but the world is silent as long as it doesn't bother their feeling of humanity but actually we are dying in Gaza slowly slowly this is slow death and i don't want my people to reach to the point that they lose hope and they have this great deal of despair because the psychological effects on us it is difficult for me to describe daily pressure daily pressure daily pressure to some point no wonder that a lot of psychological problems in Gaza no wonder why many people has anxiety ability to sleep and not only because of the covid is because of the unemployment because of the poverty 65% of people have no food security 80 and more depends on international aid 300,000 youth are graduated with no job unemployment is high when they get jobs they get it on and off and small jobs but the majority are not working with the graduates and the youth so somewhere and somehow this big uh, pot of boiling covered boil pressure cooker will explode where and when i cannot expect but for sure it will explode and when it explodes I blame the world and I blame Israel for it. The world before Israel, the world that's allowing Israel to continue its practices against the Palestinian people. Before COVID, one in four children in Gaza was in need of some sort of a psychological support. And I think the next generation is so, so important to pay attention to. So what's been the impact of this pandemic and the siege and the blockade? You spoke about it a bit just now. on the mental health of young people and children the children are in and out of school in and out schools are closed at the moment it is reopened then closed again on the level of education they missed a lot when they are not in the school there's no other places no parks no places to go to this so, so this leads to increase um, children under the covid became more aggressive very more aggressive and those kids who experienced three attacks in their little lives during the 14 years already they have been uh, suffering of the post traumatic stress syndrome after the the latest one 2014 so on top of that comes this new a new virus the pandemic so the things are complicated and for sure it will affect their psychological well-being and as i have said earlier we need a lot of research to see that what's happening in gaza i call it big big concentration camp i would say but it is in the open air gaza is a humanitarian situation on top of political one it is not because of disaster it is because of occupation because of the siege because of the long time since Palestinian made refugees in 1948 when Israel was founded so it is not the humanitarian is manifestation of political problem and there are some organizations that's helping this approach as Palestinian people are in need for humanitarian support yes we need this but more than this we need we need solidarity with our political cause We need people to understand why this is happening with us. That's why I really appreciate the people who are in solidarity with our cause and what caused the problem and the root of the problem. We need this. And I ask people to try to explore, to learn more about the injustice that has been imposed on us. We just lack basic human rights and we need change in the government's policy towards Palestinian cause, especially in Palestine. 
Gaza and the, and the West Bank. We need people to, if they want to donate for a organization as part of um, sympathizing with people. No, it is not this only. It is this link to understanding with the, the roots of the original problem. Can you talk about the access to basic care for women and children during the pandemic? And how has it impacted maternal morbidity? The accessibility to all primary health care has been affected by the pandemic because the hospitals, for example, opened its wards only towards the COVID cases. They opened only for emergency uh, surgical operations. Okay, mm-hmm. And delivery has not been affected inside the hospitals. If she is talking about delivery, because it's not only in hospitals, it is in hospitals and in uh, other medical facilities. The maternal morbidity has not been affected because of the COVID, but the more needed surgical operation has been affected. The par- primary health care has been affected because many primary health care clinics uh, has been shut down or ruined in one uh, place because all the staff has to go to the hospitals to give care to the patients. Uh, So this has been affected for population. For example, people had to travel longer to have the accessibility to the primary health care. We should also mention that Israel seldom issues permits for critically ill patients to go to Israel. This has been affected our patients because uh, not allowing the patients to get uh, further treatment outside Gaza. It was very noticeable, but I don't have numbers at the moment. We don't have numbers to say this number or that number because everybody is, as I have said, busy with fighting the the virus and the borders are closed. But for sure, for example, without saying numbers, the protocol of medicine for cancer patients has been affected and this led to many deaths in Gaza. The data that I have is from 2019 when only 64% of medical permits were approved from Gaza. Yes, you are right. It has been always a problem, not only because of the COVID. It has been always a problem getting the permits, the right permits for the right uh, people who need It has been always a problem. And again, this is apartheid health. This is uh, discrimination. And uh, I'll tell you what happens, two things. One thing that Sometimes they give permit to the child for further treatment outside Gaza and they don't allow uh, parents to accompany the child. Imagine young child going alone or somebody he doesn't know or far relative to go for treatment, mm-hmm. surgical treatment at the age of three or, or baby. Second thing, many patients has been called for interview with the Israeli intelligence and they were bargaining with them. Mm. We can help you with, with the permit for your child if you become are a collaborator. Willing. Yes, yeah. It's not just stories. It is well-known facts and many of the patients reported it to the local authorities. And this is, this is shameful. This is inhuman. I can't describe it. It is occupation. It is colonial power. It is apartheid regime. Dr. Mona Alfara is the director of Gaza Projects of the Middle East Children's Alliance and Vice President of the Palestinian Red Crescent Society of the Gaza Strip and member of the Union of Healthcare Work Committees. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. 
March 15th, in honor of International Women's Month, the newly formed U.S.-based Palestinian Feminist Collective launched a pledge declaring that, quote, Palestine is a feminist issue. The pledge was directed at women, feminists, and ally organizations to commit to Palestine as a feminist issue in response to the decades of the normalization of Zionism in progressive and women's mainstream movements in the U.S. I spoke with two of the members of the collective about the genesis of the collective and the importance of feminist solidarity with Palestine. Isis Nosair is an associate professor of Women's and Gender Studies and International Studies at Denison University. She served on the editorial committee of MERIP and is member of Jadalia and the Palestinian and Transnational Feminist Collectives. Howeda Arraf is a Palestinian-American attorney and human rights activist. She is the co-chair of the National Lawyers Guild Palestine Subcommittee and sits on a number of organizational boards including New Generation for Palestine, Eyewitness Palestine, and on the advisory board of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. The whole collective and the idea was actually inspired by emerging Palestinian feminist movements in Palestine, uh, which were formed in the wake of a gruesome murder of a young woman at the hands of her family, Isra uh, Gharib. And so there was this movement in Palestine calling out this kind of gendered violence against women and Palestinian women in the United States connected with them and also began to have these discussions about amplifying these voices and demanding in our political activism that we can't just sideline questions of, of gendered and sexual justice and freedom and violence against women, which we come across a lot in hearing that, okay, women's rights will come after liberation, or we have to keep focused on such. And, and so the message was, there's no free homeland without free women. And when we were talking about it also in the context of, of the United States, we discussed the ways in we, which we've seen feminist spaces using women and queer rights as a means of justifying the occupation of Palestine. So issues that we recognize are a problem, but were being used by Zionist and anti-Palestinian voices to indicate that Palestinians are, are backwards and have certain issues and to silence our voices when the message should really be that we need to unite in order to combat all forms of violence against women. And in Palestine, sure that we have issues domestically, and I think all, all peoples do, we're battling this as a global society, but Palestinian women suffer tremendously at the hands of the occupation and the Israeli forces, which imprison our husbands, kill our brothers, torture our children, even with, with women's issues, countless women who have been forced to give birth at checkpoints because Israelis won't let them go through to the, the hospitals or where they need to be. So this kind of all came together with a series of discussions. And I need to really give credit to the Palestinian youth movement because the discussion started with our Palestinian feminist and women youth, which is great, and expanded out to, you know, we really need this collective. We really need to focus on these issues and in U.S. spaces start to assert the fact that 
Palestine is a feminist issue and we can no longer be silent about being silenced, not being allowed to talk about our issues and allowing Zionists to use certain issues, feminist women's rights and, and gay rights as a way to bash Palestinians and justify the gruesome policies of, of the Israeli state. The voices and the movement started in Palestine and then Palestinian Americans or Palestinians based here in the United States in our connections and our relations with the, the Palestinian women and the movement that was emerging in Palestine brought these conversations to our own context here in the United States and the way that we're dealing with them and, and need to deal with them here. I don't know if you wanted to add to that, Isis. I think it's important to, um, to think of them as connected, but also specific, depending on the location. So here we are trying to make connections between the here and there, but there are also specificities to what we um, encounter here. So what does it mean to organize as feminists within the, US, the United States? What are the issues that we as women in the diaspora, I mean, I'm different because I'm a citizen. I go back and forth. I'm, I'm a citizen of both places and I live in both places, kind of part of the year there, part of the year here. But um, it is important to make those connections that we are standing in solidarity. So when Talad, the movement, and there were um, demonstrations and women standing in solidarity in different parts of the world, including in Palestine, in Beirut, in Berlin, also uh, women here started organizing and standing in solidarity. But that doesn't mean, I mean, I think it is important to be also um, attentive to the commonalities, but also to the situatedness that we are also working here. We are trying to make connections and to address the particular challenges that we face as feminist Palestinian within the United States. Um, I think there are three important things that the Palestinian Feminist Collective tries uh, to do. The first one is what I mentioned regarding the connections between the here and there. The second is the anti-colonial and the decolonial connections that they make that are crucial because they stand against violence in all kinds of forms, you know, private, public, uh, colonial violence, um, sexual violence, gendered violence, uh, but also look at life affirming. So the decolonial work that the PFC is bringing, it's actually quite amazing because it addresses issues that connect you know, what happens in terms of oppression um, on the ground, but also how we can transform or address needs in our own communities. Um, and I think that is really important. And the third is the intersectional as well in terms of connecting struggles. So we're not only, we're looking at Palestine, but we're also connecting with struggles of indigenous communities, black, Asian, queer, and we are bringing the connections between our communities to show that that these struggles, that they are indivisible, right? You can't really separate them and you can't really say, oh, it, what happens over there has nothing to do with here because we also do one thing that is really important is connecting the aid that goes from the United States to, to Israel, where we look at militarization. We examine in detail many of those connections that sometimes are seen as separate. Mm. And I think the PFC kind of bring them together in a very smart and also activist oriented mm. way. What is it about the current moment we're in that makes it necessary to raise this question of why it is important to link anti-Zionist work and feminism? Huayda can also speak from her experience. For me, I mean, many of the uh, members of the group, I mean, our names on, are on all these lists. You know, it's, it's really uh, making it impossible for people to organize. So one of our demands, if you look at the pledge, actually, is free speech and political organizing. So how can we talk about Palestine? How can we talk about liberation 
while our names on all these blacklists that are targeting. And, and I think for the groups and maybe, again, Huayda can speak more about this with the Women's March organizing. Mm-hmm. I think it became uh, all the more apparent that you actually can be feminist until it comes to Palestine, right? Because when it comes to Palestine, then it's a different politics. The feminism doesn't take the same principles approach. And I think also, if you look at the Black Lives Movement, activism um, among Palestinians in the movement, standing in solidarity, the standing rock, I mean, all of these things, I think, led to this movement. But I think it's also a combination of what happened under the Trump presidency and the kind of, um, like I said earlier, the connecting between the here and there, if you look at what happened the level of oppression, the free hand that the administration gave to Israel, the kind of agreement they signed with Arab countries. I mean, all that moved people to a point where, okay, we have to make these connections clearer and we really have to create solidarities. We want to stand in solidarity with people's struggles, but also want them to stand with us. And I think it's work that um, Huayda started with uh, international solidarity movements and other. I think bringing the feminist aspect into it gives it another dimension that I think is crucially important to to work on and also develop. And I think it's important for our communities to have it out there, but also as we build those connections and solidarities with other groups as well. What would you add, Hoyga? I would say that's exactly right. I mean, we have, you know, a a form of uh, feminism in the United States, if we're going to focus on the work that we're doing here, that has a, a long history and studies and the, the feminist movement has been connecting also with other forms of justice movements. And we saw a large display of it with the Women's March, right, against uh, Trump policies who seemed to kind of a- attack everybody that wasn't male, rich, white. But there was this separation of feminism from, from different kinds of, when it comes to kind of Palestine. And Mm. what we were saying is that we need to reject any form of feminism that's not intersectional, that doesn't account for these different forces, uh, colonialism, racism, classism, imperialism. And we assert our voices as Palestinian and as Arab feminists resisting these efforts to, to stifle and to criminalize and to suppress our narratives, which is what was happening. Certainly one of the examples of it was with the Women's March, when certain leaders in the Women's March, Palestinian, certainly an outspoken Palestinian, was uh, marginalized and pushed out, along with other people that were standing up for Palestinian rights. They didn't want to make room for that in the movement. And that is what some of the forces that we're organizing here against in the United States or figured that we need to address in the United States. Because when we are in these spaces, and yet the Zionist narrative that takes over, it not only prevents those that are concerned with Palestinian rights and connecting Palestinian rights to these different also movements, not only prevents us from speaking up, but silences our own narratives. And we're saying that it's, it's enough of that, enough of the manipulating these feminism in order to push a a Zionist colonial agenda. It needs to be just the opposite. Palestine is part of the anti-racism, anti-colonialism, pro-feminism movement. And that's what needs to be understood. And so in our work and the pledge that we put out, we're really appealing to all of these movements, all of these people, all of these forces that are working on these different forms of pushing justice for various communities and resisting all of these forms of violence that oppress us, 
Palestine can't be forgotten. It is in there. We are in there with you. And we cannot allow you to kind of forget about us anymore and allow the, the Zionist narrative to take over. And that was the intent of the pledge to put that out there, to get people sign on. And we've been really heartened by the number of people and movements and organizations, prominent feminists that have said, yes, we support you and that have signed on. That has been really heartening. And we intend to take that now also to the next level of organizing. You know, this uh, reminds me of uh, what uh, Betty Friedan told Nawal al-Sadawi in 1985 World Conference on Women, Egyptian feminists, Nawal al-Sadawi, she said, uh, Friedman whispered in her ear and said, this is a woman's conference, not a political conference. Please do not bring up Palestine in your speech. How are you thinking of engaging liberal feminists in this country? We actually, members, uh, representatives from our group met with the Women's March and there should, we send a letter initially and then a very detailed long one that goes beyond what we wrote in the pledge, addressing also their positions on Palestine previously. Uh, we met with them and I think they took what happened in the meeting to their board and we'll, we'll see what the next steps are. We are definitely in the process of uh, thinking about the next steps, so the pledge and Getting people on board was more about raising awareness to these issues. We're very interested also in addressing, we don't want this to be only about the Women's March or liberal feminism. We want to define our agendas ourselves and also set the needs for our communities while at the same time doing advocacy work. So we will definitely continue that kind of work, but we are also in the process of designing material and syllabi, educational, because there's also that whole element, like I said, of the anti-colonial and the decolonial work that we are interested in doing. Another thing that's really important is these generational conversations. So there is youth involved. Um, there are different generations of feminists also involved, different conversations within. And I think that's also very important in terms of developing the work. But I think if you think of the what it means to have this many people in one place talking and thinking about these issues. I mean, that's a presence that cannot be kind of ignored. And I think now uh, we are getting um, requests from different organizations. We had people sign from all over the world asking for um, to join uh, sessions, to send material, to contribute to pieces. So there is that public visibility that I think is crucial and that voice that will be there because Mind you, I mean, thinking about the effort and the amount of money, like when the um, when $30 million are invested in organizations that go after these activists, right, who speak or sign petitions on Palestine, you know, and then you have us doing volunteer work and staying until 10, 11 at nights at meetings and trying to organize this. But I think it is going to also bring more people on board because of the solidarity work that's being done on the ground, because Palestinians are standing and solidarity, they're not just expecting others to stand with them. And this is not new. I mean, when we we know that, for example, Angela Davis, she had Palestinians writing when she was in prison, right, in solidarity and sending letters. And when she went to Palestine, she met some of those people who wrote those letters. But I think going back to that kind of, like Huayda said, uh, focusing on interconnectedness of struggles, but also working on all of these fronts so that we work in Palestine as much as we work on with Black Lives Movement, with Standing Rock, with anti-Asian violence. And we're talking also from our positions within the U.S., but we're also 
now working also with uh, feminist organizations in the Middle East, definitely in Palestine, to see what kind of work we might develop as well in the future that goes beyond solidarity. So it's exchange of knowledge, workshops, the sky's the limit, but we are definitely only at the start. You spoke about the pledge. In March, the collective launched its first public initiative, a pledge and an open letter asking U.S. women and feminist organizations, social and racial justice organization and people of conscience to adopt Palestinian liberation, as you said, as a critical feminist issue. And the pledge lists six concrete steps. Uh, thank you for asking that. I would just like to say that the pledge, as we mentioned, has had a tremendous response. We've had well over 3,500 signatures right now and over 200 organizations, including educational organizations, which has been wonderful. For example, that the educational organizations have included or do include the National Women's Studies Association, the Arab American Studies Association, Black Women Radicals and Jewish Voice for Peace, Global Grassroots Justice Alliance, so that has been wonderful. And as uh, Isis mentioned, when we develop curriculum and materials that we can share with them, we hope that they will take them back to the, mm -hmm. their uh, education and teaching spaces and help to better make the connections that you were talking about. Now, specifically to the pledge, we did put forth uh, six uh, asks, one of them being that those that sign embrace and advocate for Palestinian liberation as a critical feminist issue. Number two being that to support Palestinian rights to free speech and political organizing everywhere. And right now we see a huge attack on that in the United States and globally, but specifically in the United States at state and, and national governmental levels, which is, we can speak more about that if there is time, but it's really disturbing and threatens the rights of free speech to all people. Uh, number three being rejecting the conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism and in particular the legal enforcement of what we have, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. They put forth a definition of anti-Semitism and examples and a lot of their examples are include criticism of Israel. So when you're criticizing a state policy or reject Zionism and what it stands for, they're conflating that with anti-Semitism. So suddenly if you um, criticize Israel's policy against Palestinians and what Israel is doing, for example, to my family, I can be labeled an anti-Semite. That also is meant to restrict free speech. So rejecting that, that's number three. Number four being to heed the call of Palestinian civil society to take up boycott, divestment, and sanctions as a nonviolent means of putting pressure on Israel to end its rampant human rights abuses, colonization, and occupation of Palestinian lands. Number five, to divest from militarism and invest in justice and community needs here at home on Turtle Island. And number six, calling for an end to U.S. political, military, and economic support for Israel and all military security and policing collaborations. And there is a lot of that, unfortunately, where there is not only uh, U.S. aid that goes to support the Israeli military, but a lot of collaboration even on the state and city levels where police departments have been sending yes. their people to train with the Israeli forces. And that has led to an increased level of militarization in our own streets. So re rejecting militarization and investing in justice, those are our core 
asks. Just I want to emphasize the invest in justice and community needs because part of the violence also in the Middle East, I mean, if you think about waging war, the violence in Iraq, sometimes people think, oh, you know, and it's that Orientalist idea about or uh, approach or perspective towards Arabs and Muslims. And when it comes to women, it even gets double uh, intensification is that, oh, look how they treat their women, etc. Uh, and taking all that in isolation of, you know, what it means to wage war, to sell weapons, to militarize whole societies, to really cause such large numbers of people to be displaced. I mean, these are all forms of violence. And I think one thing that we bring to the conversation is connecting capitalist violence, land degradation, colonial violence, and then definitely talk about violence and gendered forms of violence and sexualized, and that these also have in them these forms and they intensify these forms of violence. So I think it is important for us to make those connections and to make them clear. And like I said earlier, the here and there isn't just about solidarity. It is about looking at those connections and what it means you know, that the whole region is on fire. I mean, you look at the level of, of suffering and you think, and many take it back to Iraq and say that's when it started unraveling, right, with the occupation and no one is holding anyone accountable. I mean, I heard an interview with President Bush, he's painting. I mean, that's the level of accountability that we can develop for going and destroying a whole country. So I think these are issues for us that are really important to make those connections and to also build work in our communities because this is opening a conversation in our communities as well well in regard to what is feminism, how it's practiced, how it's connected to Palestine, what does liberation mean? And then, you know, you engage in these conversations across generations. And I think hopefully we will continue this work because this conversation is crucially important. I also wanted to ask you about this educational package that you're putting together and you're sharing it with other organizations. What's in that package? And we are still in the process of developing all of this. We just, it took lots of work to do the pledge and to get the signatures and uh, and we are just taking a breath. Um, but definitely the package will include articles, will include material, will include, um, so lots of the things that we mentioned, I mean, and many of us also write about these issues. So I think it is important where for us to also share that work and maybe translate some of that work and, and show these connections in more concrete ways. So I think that's the next step for us in terms of what kind of work. Also because of the coronavirus, we've been doing all this work virtually. The members, some members of our group received a grant to bring everyone together, but we haven't been able to meet because of the conditions. So we're hoping actually when we meet in person, we can also continue building on this work and, um, and develop it further and further. So definitely we are at the beginning, but I myself see, and as I consider myself, I mean, I'm not always fond of generational conversations, but um, I'm definitely from an older generation um, to see these young activists and the level of commitment and passion and creativity in which they're doing the work. I mean, I give them the credit. I came on board only this summer, but they've been engaged in this for longer um, than I did. And it's just fabulous. I mean, it's really amazing. The level of commitment and because they are activists in their communities, if it's the West, the South side in Chicago or um, in other places on the West Coast or East Coast, it's really important or Midwest to see what kind of work they're doing in their own communities and how this issue is continuing uh, and to build uh, on the communities as well. Isis Nosair is an associate professor of women's and gender studies and international studies at Denison University. Hawaida Arraf is a Palestinian-American attorney and human rights activist. 
She is the co-chair of the National Lawyers Guild Palestine Subcommittee and sits on a number of organizational boards, including New Generation for Palestine, Eyewitness Palestine, and on the advisory board of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Vomina radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs>